0: So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn there, Romans chapter 11. This morning we're going to be in verses 7 through 10. It's our second week in this particular chapter. Last time we covered verses 6, verses 1 through 6, excuse me. Verses 7 through 10 are about Israel's hardening, or more particularly the hardening of those Israelites who were not part of the remnant. If you recall, in the first six verses of chapter 11, Paul was talking about the remnant, his remnant among ethnic Israel. He gave the story of the prophet Elijah and how at a low point in his life, Elijah thought that he was all alone, that he was it. He was the last one who was faithful to God among the Israelites. Because the queen had killed all of the other prophets and he thought he was all alone. But God reminded him in that story that he had saved for himself, kept for himself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul used that as a way of explaining that just as God had saved for himself a remnant in Elijah's day, so he had in Paul's day as well. And Paul referenced the concept of a remnant back in chapter 9. You remember back in chapter 9, verse 27, Paul quoted from the prophet Isaiah who said, though the, numbers, uh, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So the word remnant meant, and we talked about this last time, the word remnant means a small portion of the larger whole. And, and Paul quotes from Isaiah and says, though the, though the Israelites will be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them, only a small portion of them will be saved. And Paul told us in those first six verses of this chapter that the remnant is the remnant because they're chosen by grace. And Paul talked about that in the first six verses. But the whole idea of a remnant... The whole idea of a smaller part of a larger whole begs the question, what's up with the larger whole? What about the rest? Paul dealt with the idea of the remnant in the first six verses, and he will continue to deal with the remnant and ethnic Israel as we walk through chapter 11. But now he hits the the pause button in verses 7 through 10, and he talks about those who were not part of the remnant. Those of ethnic, national Israel who weren't a part of those whom he had chosen by grace. What about the rest? That's what Paul turns his attention to now in verses 7 through 10. So let's read verses 7 through 10. Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, even when it's hard to understand and hard to apply and difficult to come to grips with based on what we think we know about you. And this is one of those times, Lord, where we in faith, we thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. And we're grateful, Lord, that we can trust that you have sovereignly overseen this book such that We can know today that these are your very words. And so we trust that these are your words to us this morning as we read about your hardening of Israelites and what the implications of that may be about us, about you. God, would you be with us as we seek to unpack this scripture? And Father, we pray in Jesus' name that that the purpose for which you include this description of your hardening of Israelites, may that purpose be met and achieved this morning in our hearts and in our souls as we respond to your word with hope and faith and worship that we might glory in your glory. May we see you in a larger light this morning because of what you say about yourself in your word. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins verse 7 by asking a question. What then? In other words, what does this mean now? What are we to conclude from this? He told his readers in verse 1 of chapter 11 that God has not rejected his people Israel. Speaking of ethnic national Israel. God has not rejected them. And then he puts forth two examples. One being himself. Paul puts forth himself as an example. And then he puts forth the remnant as an example. That God has not rejected his people. In other words, how can God have rejected ethnic Israel when Paul himself is an ethnic Israelite? But he is at the same time a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ. So he can't have summarily rejected Israel, his people. And then he holds up the remnant, however small they may be. However small this portion of the larger whole is. It is a portion of ethnic Israel. And he says that because of their existence, we cannot conclude that God has summarily rejected Israel. His people, ethnic Israel. So they're put forth as examples of that. Then he asks, what then? What then are we to conclude about the rest of ethnic Israel that aren't included in the remnant who were chosen by grace? And Paul says, they failed to obtain what they were seeking. That was, that's what verse says. What then? That Israel, ethnic Israel, especially that part of ethnic Israel that's not part of the remnant that was chosen by grace, that part was the, the, that was not part of the elect. He says they failed to obtain what they were seeking. So what, what is it that they were seeking? And what is, it, what is it that they failed to obtain? Well, Paul had already given the answer to that back in chapter 9. So I'll put on the screen chapter 9, verses 30 and following, where Paul says, Answers that question, what they were seeking. He says there, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And then he tells us why in verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, and they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what were the non-remnant Israelites seeking? They were seeking righteousness. They were seeking a right standing with God to be be justified, which we said when we covered justification in chapter 3 and 4, to be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. That's what they were seeking. They were seeking to be made right with God. And Paul says they didn't obtain it because they were trying to pursue it, not by faith, but by works, by following the law. And as a mini recap of chapters 3 and 4, chapter 3, verse 20, we're told that by works of the law, no human being will be made right in the sight of God. No human being will be declared righteous by works of the law. But then he followed that up in verse 21 with the good news. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. There is a righteousness that has been made manifest apart from the law. Apart from a righteousness that you would seek by seeking to follow the law, which is what the the Israelites were seeking. He says, now a righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the remnant of Israel, and we talked about them in verses 1 through 6, they obtained the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in that next phrase of verse 7 of chapter 11. He says, the elect obtained it. The elect elect obtained it. They were given the righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah, by faith in Jesus as their Redeemer and as their Messiah and King. But those who were not part of the remnant of Israel, they failed to obtain it. They, They failed to obtain it, what they were seeking. The elect obtained it, he said, but the rest were Hardened. Now, before we dive into what it means, this idea of hardening, which is really what verses 7 through 10 are all about. So we need to try to unpack this hardening. But before we do so, I want to press in a little bit to this idea of the elect who obtained it. Who obtained this righteousness without which we cannot be made right before God without which we cannot be saved, without which we cannot be in his presence. The caution for all of us here, which is true in any passage of Scripture, but also true here of verse 7. So we need to be careful to read verse 7 in its context. If we pull verse 7 out of its context we might come away with the impression that the remnant obtained this righteousness by their own doing, that they earned it somehow because they obtained it. Oftentimes, that's how we use the word obtain, right? That if we obtain something, that we we have done something to earn it, that we have done something to achieve it but we need to be careful not to pull verse 7 out of its context because in its context, with the preceding two verses prior to verse 7, we cannot come away with that interpretation of verse 7. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So they're not a remnant because of what they did or how they acted or any of their works. He said they were chosen by grace. And in case that phrase is not clear enough, Paul follows that up in verse 6 with this. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The fact the rem- that the remnant is the remnant and that they are chosen by grace, chosen by God's grace, precludes their being the remnant as a, as a result of anything that they had done. If it is by God's grace plus a little bit of their effort, then Paul says, it, then it can't be by grace. It is either by God's grace alone or it is not. It is with no mixture of man's doing whatsoever that the remnant is the remnant. They are chosen by God's grace. That word chosen there in verse 5, oddly enough, is the exact same word that is translated in the verse that we're looking at this morning, verse 7, as elect. It's the same exact word in the Greek. In fact, we could say in verse 5, we could read it this way, so too at the present time there is a remnant elected by grace. Or we could say in verse 7 that the chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. It's the exact same word. And so Paul makes it abundantly clear to his readers that those who were part of the remnant of ethnic Israel, by consequence of which they now have the righteousness of Jesus credited to to their account, so that they would be saved, so that they would be justified, and that ultimately they have the promise of glorification in God's kingdom. This remnant was not the remnant because of anything that they did to become the remnant, but simply because God, according to his sovereign grace, chose them, elected them, selected them, whatever word we want to use, to be the remnant this is what we labored over back in chapter 9 if you missed that go back and listen to some of those messages in chapter 9 but to borrow from some of those verses in chapter 9 verse 11 says not because of works but because of him who calls verse 15 god says i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion in other words god is completely free in the exercise of his sovereign choice in electing some. Verse 16 concluded, So then it, speaking of election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it, the, the, those who were elect, it wasn't because they were any better than those who weren't part of the remnant. It wasn't because they were more ethnically pure Jews than those who were part, weren't part of the remnant. It wasn't because they were more likely to follow God's law. It wasn't because of anything about them or what they did. It was simply according to God's sovereign grace. And parenthetically, why do you think God did it this way? Why do you think God chose or elected in such a way that it is wholly and completely based on him? Well, so that he would get the glory in saving sinners and not man. And that's exactly what the result is. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you may be ethnically Jewish, you may be ethnically Gentile, but you are part of the elect, part of the remnant chosen by grace. And that means you have obtained it You have obtained the righteousness that you need in order for you to be made right in the presence of a holy and sovereign God. You have obtained it, but you haven't obtained it because you were better than the rest. And you haven't obtained it because you tried harder to be a good person than the rest. And you didn't obtain it because you were more likely to follow God's commandments than the rest. And foundationally and fundamentally, hear me on this, you didn't obtain it because you made a decision to trust in Christ. Paul says in chapter 9, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So instead, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, it is because our sovereign God, out of his sheer grace And mercy unconditionally chose to set his saving love on you. Not because of anything about you. Not because of anything that you did or wouldn't do. But simply because of his sovereign grace. What an amazing thought. What a humbling thought. What a glorious thought. What a gracious God we have Now, with that understanding of the elect, let us now press in to the rest. Paul says that the elect obtained it. How? By God's sheer grace and mercy. What about the rest? He says the rest were hardened here. So let's be clear about who the rest are. The rest are those who were not part of the remnant. The remnant being the the small part of the larger whole. The remnant now being the rest of that larger whole. The elect is the small part. The remnant is small part. The rest is the rest of the larger whole. And Paul says that they were hardened. What does it mean that they were hardened? What is this hardening that Paul speaks of? Who does this hardening? And most probably most importantly, And probably most burning on our hearts is, why were they hardened? In seeking to address this, we're going to go back to chapter 9. We've talked about how chapter 11 is about ethnic Israel and what God is doing with ethnic Israel, and he's going to pick that up next week. He's going to tell us more about what his plans are and have been with ethnic national Israel, but... He takes a time out here to deal with the rest. Those who aren't part of the remnant, those who aren't part of the elect. He says they were hardened. We saw this concept of hardening in chapter 9. In chapter 9 verse 18, Paul says, so then he, being God, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens. Whomever he wills, and when we dealt with that passage, we came up with our definition of hardening as a as a verb or as a process, and our, our definition was this: the act or process of generating a general disposition of disobedience and rebellion. That's what that's what it means to harden. It's the act or process of generating a general disposition of disobedience and rebellion. And so, what is this hardening? In order to understand this, in order to explain this, Paul pulls from three different places in the Old Testament. And in doing so, he he really pulls from the full part of the Old Testament. He pulls from the law, he pulls from the prophets, and he pulls from the writings or the songs. And we see this in verse 8 and verses 9 and 10. Verse 8 is from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, and verses 9 and 10 are from Psalm 69. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Now, this comes from two places Deuteronomy 29 and And Isaiah 20. This is a hard truth to come to grips with. And we may feel like Charlie a little bit, dealing with Israel's hardening. But Paul Paul here is pulling from two places, Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 says this. Moses is writing there. It's his final song to the Israelites before they cross over the Jordan and head into the promised land and claim their birthright. Moses writes to them, The Lord has not given you a heart of understanding or eyes to see or ears to hear. As you go into the promised land, God has not given you a heart of understanding. and He hasn't given you eyes to see or ears to hear. And then Isaiah 29, the other text that Paul borrows from here, says the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. Isaiah here is speaking, God is speaking through Isaiah to the to the prophets of Israel, to the leaders of Israel. And he says, the Lord Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. And so what is Paul doing? He's, he's borrowing from these two places. And by the way, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, so only the Holy Spirit can do this. He's pulling from these two different places and bringing them together to say in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That comes from, he did not give you a heart of understanding, and he has given you a spirit of deep sleep. From that, Paul says God gave them a spirit of stupor, talking about the remnant, talking about the non-elect. God has given you a spirit of stupor. That word stupor here literally refers to that prickling feeling that you feel in your hand when your hand falls asleep. We've all had that happen before, right? That's literally what that word stupor refers to, that it becomes numb, that it becomes unaffected by outside stimulus because it's as as if it's asleep. We have to shake it to wake it up, to, to, to return feeling to it. That's the idea of stupor. God has given you a spirit of stupor, he says, about The remnant, excuse me, not the remnant, but those who are not part of the remnant. The rest. God has given you a spirit of stupor. Speaking there about a sense of spiritual numbness. Spiritual apathy. A spirit that, whose affections are unaffected by God's glory and goodness. And in all three places here from the Old Testament, this hardening is further described as having eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. All three places speak of that. And we should note here not just eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, but would not see, would not hear. The spirit of stupor that describes this hardening is manifested not just by spiritual numbness and spiritual slumber and spiritual apathy and where our affections are unaffected by the glory and goodness of God, but also by spiritual rebellion resulting in them being unwilling to see or hear anything about Jesus and anything about the gospel then in verses 9 and 10, he, he adds more to this description of what the hardening looks like. Again, we described and we, we we gave a definition for the process of hardening, it is the act or process of generating a general disposition of disobedience and rebellion. But what Paul is doing in verses eight through ten is giving us a picture of what that looks like. It looks like spiritual numbness and spiritual slumber and apathy where our affections are unaffected by the glory of God in the gospel. But he goes on from there, and he says in verses 9 and 10, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is from Psalm 69, and in Psalm 69 David is fleeing from his enemies, and he prays two things. One, he prays that he would be saved from his enemies. But secondly, as an imprecatory psalm, he he prays against his enemies. He prays that God would punish his enemies. And part of the punishment that David asks for his enemies to endure is, let their table become a snare to them, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. What does that mean? Well, a table in Scripture is often symbolized as a symbol of abundance and feasting on God's goodness, feasting on good things that are provided in abundance. So when Paul uses that picture here in Romans 11, 11, in order to give further description to this idea of hardening, he's referring to God's good gifts given to the rest, given to the remnants, but that those good gifts become idols. He's referring to how God's good gifts to us can become idols and replace God's rightful place in our heart as our greatest treasure and our greatest delight. And we know this to be true of any of God's good gifts to us, whatever they might be, food, money, job, sex, whatever it is, God's good gifts to mankind can become in the hands of sinful men idols and can replace God in his rightful place as our greatest treasure. And in that sense, they become for mankind a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, as he says. So this is how Paul describes the picture of hardening that Those who aren't part of the remnant endure and are are subjected to. That those who are not part of the remnant have received spiritual numbness, spiritual apathy, spiritual slumber. Where our affections, where man's affections are unaffected by God's goodness and glory and grace. It doesn't draw us to him. Spiritual rebellion, spiritual blindness and deafness And caught in the snare of God's good gifts becoming a replacement for God himself as our greatest treasure and delight. Now, as bad as that is, one of the most important things for us to keep in mind about this biblical concept of hardening is not just the state of being hardened itself. But it is the fact that one is intentionally hardened so that they are in this state. And so that brings us to the second question to address about this hardening, and that is, who does it? Who does this hardening? And of course, we know by now, by reading this scripture, that it is God who does this hardening. When Paul says in verse 7, the rest were hardened, the only way to understand that Greek verb is that it is in the passive tense. This isn't something that they did but it is something that was done to them. They were hardened. Church, this means that God intentionally and willfully gave them the spirit of stupor, the spiritual numbness and apathy, spiritual blindness and deafness so that they could not see and could not here. God did that to them. Now we've got to ask the why question, don't we? The why question is burning in our hearts. Lord, why would you do this? Why in the world would you do this? Why would you harden folks so that they are unable to come to you in faith? Why would you do this? But before we wrestle with that why question, I want us to see how different this is than what we typically hear of American Christianity. John Piper notes that if we were to rewrite verse 7 in our own words, we would probably say something like this. We would have written, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The believers obtained it, but the rest refused to believe instead of the rest were hardened. That's a lot softer. It seems a lot kinder to God, doesn't it? In a sense, it may take God off the hook and puts the blame squarely on man. And in a sense, if we were to say that, we would be right. That is right and that is true, that the rest refused to believe. In fact, we'll find later in chapter 11, verse 19, we're told that the rest, the non-elect, those who were part of ethnic Israel, who were not part of the remnant, that they were cut off from the vine because of their unbelief. Make no mistake about it. They are cut off from the vine because of their unbelief. And believe me, I wish that's how verse 7 had read. It would be a whole lot easier for me to stand up to you, here before you this morning and preach to you that the rest just refused to believe and therefore incurred the wrath of their own disbelief. It would be a whole lot easier to preach that. But church, that's not what verse 7 says. God and his infinite and divine wisdom under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's not how Paul wrote this. It says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. They were given by God a spirit of stupor, spiritual numbness and apathy, spiritual blindness and deafness, spiritual rebellion and obstinacy thus that they would not and could not come to faith in Jesus and obtain righteousness and justification. That's what it says. Why did God choose to write it this way in Scripture? Why couldn't he have just said, the rest just refused to believe? Apparently there is something about God's intentional and willful act of hardening here that is beneficial for us to know and believe and to come to grips with. And we find that which is beneficial to us in this writing as we unpack the why question. So why does God harden? And when we're talking about hardening here, in this particular context in chapter 11, we're talking about the hardening of the rest of ethnic Israel. But we know by way of Chapter 9, that he also hardens Gentiles. And so we really can include all of those who are not part of the elect here. Why does God harden them? Why does God harden the non-elect? In answering the why question, there are really two parts to this. First of all, what is the basis? What is the basis of his hardening? So what leads him to do this? And secondly, what is the purpose in it? And is there a purpose in it? So let's handle the first one first. What's the reason or the basis? What's the cause for God hardening some? And as we deal with this, we're going to see that much of what we said about the basis for God's decision to elect the elect will also be the basis for God's decision to not elect the non-elect and to harden them. He doesn't harden them because they were any worse than the remnant. He doesn't harden them because they were less ethnically pure Jews than the remnant were. He doesn't harden them because they were less likely to follow the law than the remnant. He doesn't harden them because there was anything about them or anything that they did or would do or wouldn't do in their life that makes them in any way different from the remnant themselves. When we were talking about the elect in chapter 9, we quoted from chapter 9, verse 15, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, when we read that, we concluded that God is completely fair and just and right in, the, in choosing whom he decides to have mercy on. But now... In discussing the non-elect here in chapter 11, we'll also go back to chapter 9 and quote three verses later in chapter 18, which we already said, where Paul says, so then he has mercy on whomever he he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what is the basis of, of God's decision to harden some? What is the basis of that decision? It is exactly the same as the basis for his decision to elect the elect, his Sovereign and gracious will. See, it's like this. We are, all of us, sinners. And none of us has in ourselves any righteousness of our own. That's what Paul spent the better part of the first three chapters of this letter explaining to us. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no good in any of us. Apart from Christ, all of us deserve judgment because of our sin and rebellion against God. We, we who were created to bask in the warmth of God's glory and goodness, we cannot even behold God's glory, much less approach him in his presence because of our sin and rebellion. But God In his divine and infinite wisdom, he chose to make a way for sinful man to be reconciled back to him. And the way that he chose was through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, and risen three days later. That was his way to reconcile sinful and lost humanity back to himself. But here is the problem, church. Because of our depravity, none of us, none of us would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We couldn't. That part of us that would come to him was dead in our trespasses and sins. Our spirit was not alive. We could not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, God, in eternity past, As Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, he chose for himself those whom he would redeem. And that that choosing of his was an unconditional election. That's what we wrestled with in chapter 9. And just as with Jacob and Esau, we saw that in setting his saving love on some, on some, he intentionally and willfully passed over others. In setting his love on Jacob, he willfully and intentionally passed over Esau. And those whom he passed over were passed over because they were not part of the remnant chosen by grace to obtain this righteousness by faith. It wasn't because of anything about them. It wasn't because of anything that they did or didn't do or would or wouldn't do in their life. It was simply an act of sovereign choice on the part of a sovereign and free God. That was the basis. And the reality that that we have to wrestle with is the fact that we, all of us, including all of us in this room, we deserve, all of us, to be subjected to this very hardening that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 11. We deserve this We deserve to be subjected to the spiritual numbness and the spiritual apathy. We deserve, because of our sin and our rebellion against God, we deserve to be subjected to that process by which our affections are unaffected by God's glory and goodness. We deserve to be subjected to that process by which God's good gifts become nothing more than idols to us and replace God. We deserve that. That's what all of us deserve. And it is only by God's sovereign grace that he has set his saving love on us and chosen us to obtain the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. We need to wrestle with the fact that and realize the fact that God only hardens sinners God only hardens those who desire just that. God only hardens those who, are, who desire independence from God. D.A. Carson put it this way, because he can say it so much better than I can. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings. That's not what hardening is. So if in your mind you're thinking, oh, okay, these people are are morally neutral and they want to come to God, but God hardens them and prevents them from doing so. That is not the biblical picture of hardening. Instead, it is this. It is that, Carson says of a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be exactly what they themselves have chosen to do and be. That's what hardening biblically looks like. It's not not an arbitrary, capricious God sending this, this judgment on a morally neutral people, but it is a people who are who desire independence from God and will desire to reject the gospel. And who is a part of that? You and I and every person who has ever lived. And so if nothing more, this picture of God's hardening should humble us to our core that God has been so gracious to set his saving love on those whom he has given the privilege of obtaining the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith but why did he do it the basis the basis is god's sovereign will and and by the way it is not the basis of god's sovereign will in such a way that it takes God, mankind off the hook for his own sin and rebellion he's still on the hook how can God be sovereign in hardening and yet man still be responsible for his sin and rebellion? I don't know. It's a mystery. When we were in chapter 9, we talked about how it is a mystery that God can be sovereign in salvation, that God can be sovereign in his election of some, and yet man is still responsible for coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Those two things are true, though we can't explain it or understand it. In the same way, it is true that God is sovereign and hardening for some reason, which we'll seek to unpack in just a moment. But in the very same breath, man is responsible for his sin and rebellion, and he answers for his sin and rebellion in judgment. He is deserving, though he has been hardened. Now, why does he do it? Is there any purpose in this? Because it certainly seems arbitrary and capricious. What is his purpose in doing so? This is the why that we really have to come to grips with and we try to wrestle with. I can understand that he sovereignly and freely elected some to obtain righteousness by faith and that he sovereignly and freely chose not to save others. I can perhaps come to grips with that and instead he hardens others And I can understand that both of these decisions are his and his alone and he is fair in making them and they are based not on the the works of man but on his sovereign will. But at the end of the day, why? Why does he do it? Why did he create some as elect and some as non-elect? This why question was addressed in chapter nine. I want us to go back to chapter nine and consider that why. In chapter nine, Paul referenced God's hardening of Pharaoh. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, we remember that God told Moses two things about Pharaoh. First of all, he he told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Let, let, Let the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people out of bondage, let them go so they can go to the promised land that I have willed for them to inherit. That's what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. But God told Moses something else about Pharaoh. He said, he's not going to do it. He's not going to let him go. And then he told him why because I will harden Pharaoh's heart. As we read the Exodus story, we see over and over again this repetition of how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And sometimes it's clear that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it seems as though Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And sometimes it's just an impassive verb that that there's no reference as to who does the hardening, but it's just hardened. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But at the very outset of that story in Exodus chapter 4, as um, God is coming to Moses and he tells him what he wants him to do, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let people go. God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he tells him why he's hardening Pharaoh's heart. So that he will not let my people go. And we read that and we think, God, why would you do that? Why, why, why would you harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let your people go? Isn't that why you're interrupting Moses' life in the wilderness and sending him back to Egypt? To go to his stepbrother the Pharaoh and and be used by God for your people to be released from slavery and and go into the promised land? God, isn't that why you are sending Moses in the first place? Then why, God? Why why would you harden Pharaoh's heart? Or we're told why. In Romans 9 verse 17, which is a direct quote from Exodus 9 verse 16, which is God's word to Pharaoh. Look at Romans 9 verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. So this is God's word to Pharaoh. After that story, God's word to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. In other words, God is sovereign in Pharaoh's life. And God has raised up Pharaoh For a purpose. God has put Pharaoh in this time and in this place. And he has situated him in such a way as to accomplish his purpose. What purpose was that? He tells us. For this very purpose I have raised you up. That I might show you. That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Pharaoh... I've got a purpose for your life. I am going to use you and your obstinacy and your refusal to let my people go. I'm going to use that to show my power and to proclaim the glory of my name in all of the earth. And that would not have been possible if if Pharaoh had just said, okay, here's the key. Go ahead and, and leave and go into the desert. Instead, it was through Pharaoh's obstinacy, through Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go over and over and over again, that God would need to show up in his power and majesty and glory and cause the angel of death to come to the firstborn of the Egyptians and cause the Israelites to be released and part the Red Sea through which he would deliver his people. God proclaimed the glory of his name and his power. Because of the obstinacy and the refusal of Pharaoh to let his people go. God had a purpose in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So was it Pharaoh who hardened his own heart? Or was it God who hardened his heart? Yes. It was both. God hardened Pharaoh's heart according to his sovereign will, and yet it was in some mysterious way in accordance with Pharaoh's own hardness of heart. And he used it to do what? To display his own glory. That's the testimony of Romans 9, and that's the testimony that we should walk away with in Romans 11 as well. In seeking to answer this why question, I just want to read... Verses 22 and 23 from Romans 9 and let them speak for themselves yet again. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power? Doesn't that sound like 917? God said, I'm going to show my power through your rebellion, Pharaoh. I'm going to make known the glory of my name to all the earth through you. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's the non-elect. And we can put Pharaoh's face there, right? God endured Pharaoh with great patience. Pharaoh didn't deserve to be the leader of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. Pharaoh didn't deserve to keep breathing oxygen. The only thing he deserved is what we deserve. Judgment because of our rebellion against God. And so God endured him with much patience. And why? Why does he show his wrath through them? Why does he show his power through the non-elect? Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is the elect, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Our God is a God of self-revelation. He loves to reveal who he is and what he's like, and we should be glad of that. We should be glad that God wants to reveal to us his character and nature and being so that we might know him. So that we might know his character and his nature and his, and his being. But our comprehension, our knowing of God's character and nature and being is not primarily what compels the Lord to reveal his nature and character and being to us. It is that we might be in awe of him not just to know him, not just to have a comprehension of his nature and character and being, but so that we might fall on our knees in humble adoration of his majesty and glory. That's why he reveals himself. Simply put, we were made to glory in his glory. And we can't. We can't fully Glory in his glory without a comprehensive revelation of his true character and nature and being. And His, the revelation of his character and nature and being is incomplete without the revelation of his wrath and his power. And so, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9 again. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why why did God harden the non-elect so that we in whom he has set his saving love might glory in his glory and behold not just his love and mercy and compassion and grace, but also behold his righteous wrath and his infinite power. Now how do we respond to this description of God's hardening a couple of ways in which we should guard ourselves from responding a couple of ways in which we need to make sure that we're not responding to this we might be tempted to respond to this and think that God is not fair and I would submit to you that all of chapter 9 through 11 is Paul's apologetic that God is just in all that he does Let me just read to you, just listen to Paul's rebuke of such a thought that God is unfair in chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter, who is God, no right over the clay, which is us, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? However, we come to grips with what Paul is saying in these chapters. And you don't have to agree with my interpretation of this. But under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I believe this is what God's word is saying. But whatever we walk away with, let us not walk away with any conclusion that God is not fair. God is just in all that he does. Second thing that we need to guard ourselves against is thinking that we as believers in Jesus Christ, that our hearts have been hardened. You might be sitting there and thinking, you know, I sense some spiritual numbness in my own heart. I sense a spirit of apathy. Do I have this spirit of stupor? I sense spiritual blindness. I sense deafness. I'm not hearing from him. My affections are not always affected by the display of his goodness and glory in the gospel. Has my heart hardened? Can a believer's heart be hardened? No. A believer's heart can grow cold. And there can be a number of reasons for that. Maybe it's sin. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you've been unrepentant of. And your heart has grown cold. Maybe it's a trial that you're walking through and God is using this trial to sanctify you and make you more like Him. But in the midst of it, it feels, it feels like there's a hardness of heart. There's a big difference between having a cold heart and having a hard heart. Tony Reinke says this, a truly hard heart cannot feel or lament its own hardness. Hang on to that. If that describes you this morning, hang on to that. A truly hard heart cannot feel its hardness and cannot lament its hardness. So if you lament that spirit of spiritual apathy that you're struggling with, if you lament that, it means you've got a cold heart, not a hard heart. Believer's heart is not hardened. This is something according to God's divine wisdom that he does to the non-elect in order to display ultimately his wrath and power. So how should we respond? If it's not by accusing God of unfairness and if it's not by falling into a questioning of our own salvation and the hardness of our own heart, how should we respond? I think we should respond in worship. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would display his power and the glory of his name to all the earth, if he is hardening the non-elect today as a display of his wrath, as a display of his power so that the vessels of mercy might glory in the richness of his glory, then church, let us glory in his glory. Let us worship his goodness and grace. And far be it from us to be prideful that he has set his saving love on us. There is nothing about us. There is nothing about me that is worth saving. But God in his sovereign grace has set a saving love on me. And in that I see the glory of his goodness. Let us worship him for that. Let's pray.